Welcome to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. This is our attempt to speak the gospel out of every corner of Scripture. We believe every part of the Bible, Old Testament and New, is about Jesus. And this podcast is our experiment to publicly test that belief. Let's jump in. All right, and welcome to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. Uh, We have a super special episode for you today, don't we, Seth? So special. Yes, very, very excited. Uh, We have with us today Andrew Wilson, uh, all the way from England. How are you, Andrew? I'm really well, thank you. It's great to be with you. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, so Andrew is uh, the teaching pastor uh, at uh, King's Church London. Uh, He's the co-author of Echoes of Exodus. Uh, The subtitle for that book is Tracing Themes of Redemption Through Scripture. Which Um, makes him a great guest for this podcast. Which makes him a great guest because we're in (laughs) Exodus right now, and so it's perfect. Uh, And he's also written um, several other books, uh, one of which is uh, The Life We Never Expected, Hopeful Reflections on the Challenges of Parenting Children with Special Needs, which is a really special book. Um, and uh, you can check him out. He also blogs over at thinktheology.co.uk. Uh, he's such a, I don't know, I, I've respected Andrew for such a long time. I kind of feel like he's like a little celebrity in my world. I was sending David all these gifts of Will Ferrell jumping up and down as Elf, like so excited that you were going <laughs> to be on our podcast. <laughs> So, um, so Andrew, uh, before we start and jump into what we're, we're what we're going to be talking about today, which is uh, Exodus thirty-two the and golden the golden calf, calf uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about Echoes of Exodus and what you guys were trying to achieve in that book, uh, and maybe a little bit about uh, what you talk about in there with the musicality of Scripture? Yeah, sure. I, I, um, I this this book came out because I was reading a series of online articles by a friend of mine, Alistair Roberts, with whom I've co-written the book, and he was giving all sorts of examples of ways in which the Exodus theme reappears through the Bible in ways that I just, it would blow my mind as I was coming across them. Some of them I'd seen before, uh, kind of more obvious ones like the Exodus in the gospel story, but a lot of them I'd not really given any thought to it. I never noticed them, like the Exodus in the Elijah and Elisha story or the Exodus in Genesis or Ruth or anywhere else. And um, I just thought this would be a really great thing for a wider audience to get. So I asked him, can I like translate it for a popular audience. And so that's what we did. And one of the things that, um, as you mentioned, one of the things we did was to use this theme of music, which I'm increasingly seeing as a really significant, not just metaphor, but sort of linguistic way of framing what the Bible is and even Christian belief. I think there's some really interesting ways in which music is a better um, metaphorical set of tools to use when describing the Bible than spatial images or even narrative images, because stories, um, if something gets repeated in the story, it would be seen as an illusion or a sort of deliberate reenactment of something. If that happens in a Shakespeare play where you get something that happens early on and happens similarly later on, it it's not sort of, you know, it's, things are chronologically developed, but it isn't, um, it, it's very much a, a recapitulation of the same idea and it, each event is different in that sense. One of them is just similar to the other. Whereas when you do that in music, you can get the same musical theme comes back again and again in different keys, in different mm. modes. It, sometimes you can get the, the treble turns into the bass and you can get a lot of, obviously a lot of pieces of music do that. Right. And I'm just thinking many about the Star ways Wars scripture, theme. <laughs> the Star yeah. Wars theme. Whenever the music comes well, back, you know they're coming time, back. It's like it? an emotional yeah. response. It's not just 
like a story recapitulating. It's like an emotional response. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's exactly it. And that kind that the fact that it's like that. Um, makes it a really good image for for the Bible because sometimes you get an Exodus story in what seems like a really, you know, da 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 da, da, da <laughs> and then sometimes it might be, da, 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 da. and you know, it, it can be dark or light or brooding or inspirational or whatever. And I just we we found that really helpful and just give a bit of thought I think to the way in which the kinds of metaphors you use shape the way that you think about an issue. That's and really some examples of that. So music is the way that we like to think about it, and that's why it echoes. Right, and so and so this is the spoken gospel podcast where we're trying to speak the gospel out of every corner of scripture. So um, these musical themes they come back in the in the New Testament too, and they they find I guess their crescendo in Christ, right? Yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah, and yeah. that's that's the I think that's the 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 idea that if you think about the if you think about it as a symphony. And then the sort of the moment when the choir, you know, in, in Beethoven's Ninth, the moment when the choir comes in at the end uh, for the last 10 or 12 minutes of the whole piece is this sort of massive thing the whole piece has been building to and all the themes come together and so on. And that's obviously in some ways the four Gospels and then it resolves in Re- Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth in the end, at the end of the piece. And I think seeing it that way, you, you, you've then got the Gospels bring together all kinds of different strands of melodies and themes and key changes that have been building for thousands of years and brings them all together in christ and, I, and in some that's one way of looking at you know or in in christ all of god's promises are yes and amen it's like in him all of these things that we have been waiting for have come together perfectly and been beautifully expressed at the, the highlight of the story oh wow i love that so much that's so helpful even for me as a preacher like i think when i tell i'll retell stories like this is repeated here 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 and here yeah. it always feels a little like flat Mm. But to say, like, no, these are actually sung in different pitches throughout the redemptive story so that when you finally come to Christ, you have the specific response. That's super helpful for me, actually, as I think through. I'm preaching through the book of Exodus right now Mm. for our student ministry. I actually gave all the leaders your book to help them process through it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah. And so, Andrew, uh, when someone picks up Echoes of Exodus, like, what's the what's the takeaway that you kind of hope that they would uh, walk away with? Well, I, in many ways, I think the fact that the, to see the gospel in a new way, see what Jesus has done in a new way, and very closely connected to that, to see the integratedness and joined upness and beauty of scripture, the unity of the Bible. Yeah. Um, and, but, and those two things really are, are kind of the same sort of thing. So, because in a way, if you see the unity of scripture, then you can be reading the story of Lot and thinking, this has got nothing to do with me. This is just a, a weird story about a guy whose wife gets turned into a condiment and that's just a very strange it's a very strange narrative and then when you read the story of lot as an exodus story you realize this is about a plague coming at night and angels coming to a door and people retreating inside the door and then being delivered from a city that's being destroyed and then running out into the wilderness and then some of them wanting to turn back and as a result being judged and others of them persevering and pressing on and and then you think hang on in that case that story is like the same as my story which is that i am somebody who has pushed away God from my life, but eventually God has come into my life and found a way of protecting me and saving me from myself and rescued me in the middle of the night from this city that is being destroyed all around me. And in spite of my dithering, has brought me out into a land flowing with milk and honey in Christ. And you, you can, it just helps you join together parts of the Bible in ways that you haven't thought of, but it also opens your eyes to the wonder of what Jesus has done for you. 
Yes. Oh yeah. my goodness. And I will also refer to my sin as dithering from now on. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh my goodness. Do you not have that word? Is dithering? Oh, I know it is. We just we just we don't use it. That's we definitely we a... use it nigh um of fortnight. Um. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a strange request before we transition. Okay. But Andrew, can you give us your best version of an American accent? Oh man, <laughs> dangerous like, oh, request. Sure. Let me hear it. Sure. Um. Okay. So. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering if perhaps the most useful thing might be for me to simply do a, a kind of a generic. It's good. This is so good. It's really around. good. But, so of, good. but of course, if we were to move down to the south, oh. I have to be a little bit more like somebody who sounds to an English person like they might not be able to talk. That's pretty good. Um, That's the most. Yeah, I don't know. That's well done. But wow. When, wow. I, visited Oklahoma, I thought you guys would be more southern than you are. When I went to Oklahoma, I was oh, right. it wasn't a southern Yeah, we're a little more mid Midwestern. Midwestern, yeah. Yeah, but. That's I also hilarious. didn't grow up here, so I get an excuse. Yeah, that's true. You grew up, yeah, you grew up uh, overseas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's uh, let's transition into looking at uh, Exodus thirty-two. So Moses is still up on the mountain. He's right. been up there for almost forty days, and the people are um, disappointed that he has not come back down yet. <laughs> where is this guy? <laughs> He, where is he? What's he doing? And so they go up to Aaron and ask him, say, we don't know what's happened to him. So we want to worship a God. We want to worship or something or something. And so Aaron takes all their gold and all their jewels yep. and puts into a fire. And we're told in verse uh, four that he actually fashions it with a graving tool. And he's going to deny that. Deny that later. It just popped out of the flames later. Came out. Yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> and then... Um, as they come out, the, all of the people of Israel say, look, these are the gods that delivered us. And then Aaron, seeing the response of the people, decides to make an altar and then and sacrifice. And says, tomorrow we'll have a feast to Yahweh. To Yahweh. So, so weird. Yeah, keep so, going. Keep yeah, going. so like, yeah, no, yeah. I, mean, I, put, I, I underline it. This is like the name, the covenant name yeah. of Yahweh, the name that Moses learned in Exodus 3. Right. Like, this is... Super this is weird. a feast to Yahweh, the golden calf. Yeah. And then they rose up early the next day and they offer all these burnt offerings and yep. they offer peace offerings and they sit down to eat and drink and they rise up to play. Right. So one thing that we should probably notice here is they've broken the first three commandments. <laughs> yep. So they, they've made other, they've made idols. They've made, they've uh, worshiped other gods. They've taken the name, Lord's name in vain. And I also think they probably broke the fourth commandment here as well. Because they are to we're told that they're sitting down to eat and drink and they're rising up to play, which are these like Sabbath day activities. And in addition to that, they're offering sacrifices as well, although they're not offering any sin offerings. If you mm. notice that, they're only offering peace offerings and uh, burn offerings, no sin offerings. Makes sense. Interesting. Anyway, so I think they're breaking all the commandments that relate to God. And then Moses... Um, or God hears about what's going God on and tells Moses that, uh, oh, the people are committing heinous sins and um, uh, I, my anger is burning hot against them. I'm going to strike out against them. And Moses intercedes and says, no, don't let your anger burn hot. Um, you know, remember your covenant. Right. And so God relents. And, right. And, and Moses takes the tablets down on the mountain, down the mountain, sees what he's doing, sees what the people are doing. And he ends up embodying what the wrath right, of the God. The same word that yep. burn hot, God's anger burns yep. hot. Moses' anger burns hot. Uh, and then Aaron says, don't let your anger burn yeah. hot, Moses. Now Aaron is repeating what Moses had said. Right. Don't, don't worry about it. I just like happened to, it, it just popped out. Yeah. It uh, just it, popped out. I don't know what happened. Yeah. Which I thought was an interesting like allusion to the way that Adam like blame shifted 
um, oh, sure. his own yeah. sin in the garden. Right. So no, no, it wasn't. I, I didn't have any responsibility here. Uh, anyway, then they uh, Moses embodies again the wrath of the Lord, right. even after praying for grace and mercy, mm-hmm. and then gathers the Levites, kills three thousand people, right. um, and then makes atonement and a sacrifice. Goes back to the up Lord. to the mountain to the Lord mm-hmm. to try to make atonement, even offering himself, saying, "Blot me out of your of the of your book, Lord." And God says, no, I'll, I'll, I'll hold the people responsible for sin who are supposed to be responsible for sin. And then the chapter ends. After God sends After a plague. After God sends a plague. <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. So uh, you want to queue up. Let, let's go back to the top of the chapter here and let's, uh, let's field some questions to Andrew here. Okay. So, um, Do you want to point out anything else in this passage that we kind of just glossed over or something interesting that we should be pointing out? Yeah, Andrew. That's good. Um, I mean, I, I, I think that's... I think you get a lot of the things that I think are most important to it. I love, I think the, the point you made about the full story, like the, the number of echoes of the full story, really the blame shifting, the, uh, the sort of the fact that God is present, but that we're immediately going to ask for something more than that. And we're going to break the direct mm. commandment he's already given us. And then in doing it, we're going to, I mean, the, the language, I find it hilarious. You read Aaron, just, you know, then I threw this stuff into the fire and out came this cat. Like, <laughs> how on earth could you, frame what you do like that but it is no more ridiculous than the woman you gave me made me do it sort of thing wow um and obviously that and in a sense that does it serves that way as israel's full narrative so it's not just the fall of Aaron; it's the fall of the nation as a whole um and and is that just as soon as you have you know the commission now go be fruitful and multiply you then have a fall you have right now i'm appointing you to be kings and priests and go out and effectively rule the world and serve them on my behalf and again immediately there's a fall narrative so that I think sets us up for the pattern that over and over again will take place. And it's quite interesting when you see the whole Bible through that lens, you realize we get multiple deliverances of the people of God and each one is followed by a fall except one, which is where we get the the coming of Jesus. And there we get the new image of God. So Adam is the image of God. Israel bears the image of God. Israel after exile, David, the king bears the image of God. And then he sends Bathsheba. Israel is restored to rightful image and coming back from exile but sins again by marrying foreign women all these themes but it's actually only in christ that you have somebody bear saying i am this is now my beloved son with whom i'm well pleased and he hasn't fallen he hasn't done anything wow. wrong. um and that i think as you see the, the sort of the exception is that again a bit like music isn't it that yeah. when you break the theme that you've established it can sound surprising mm. and that's exactly what i think happens when you read the jesus story in light of the, the golden calf because that is the one place in scripture where there is no fall to follow the revelation of God's image. Wow. I, I've never looked at it like that. That's that's amazing. Um so so one of the things that I've always I've always tried to wrestle with here and and, and it came up when when Seth was kind of narrativizing the text and I and I jumped in and said, or something, whenever he talked about like, you know, Moses was up on the mountain for a while and then they wanted to worship something else, and I was like, Well, or something. Uh, because there's this language here is like, um, make us a God to go up before us. Is, is that, Andrew, do you think that's intercession language that they were wanting? There's this big scary God on the mountain and they want to go between, uh, they don't trust Moses to be that anymore. Maybe he's dead on the mountain or, or do you think it was more of like, give us something to worship? Was it just importing Egyptian pagan practices? Why do you think they built the golden calf to begin with? Yeah, it's, um, it's, I, I've read it. I mean, I think when you first read it, you assume it's a false god. Right. Um, I mean, obviously, it is a false god in the sense that it's an image. But you assume it's... Uh, when I first read it, I thought it was an idol in the sense that a, an Asherah pole or a statue to Baal would be an idol. And as you read the story more carefully, you realize, no, this is they are creating this god 
as as a physical representation of Yahweh, aren't they? They, yeah. they are saying, here are your here is your God or your gods, your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so Aaron's expectation and the people's expectation is that this is a physical representation of the invisible God. And that is that sense, it's more the second commandment than the first commandment, although mm. it's the first commandment as well. But, you know, it, it's the it's the making of an image that's the key issue, I think. This is idolatry, um, not polytheism. That's like that. Right. What, yeah, yeah okay. that's a good way yeah. of putting it. But but I but of course the line is the line is very difficult to draw because the the very point about the prohibition of images is in part that Israel has spent four centuries in Egypt where deities are visible and therefore to make a visible image is not simply to unfortunately misworship the right God it's actually to create a it is in that sense a different God because as soon as you make an image of God you are massively demeaning him and blaspheming him really uh, relative to who he is so it's a, it's an interesting one he, they well, i think what they think they're doing is simply making a visible image of the invisible god but what's actually happening from god's point of view is they are setting up an entirely different deity but i do find the line you mentioned there as for this moses we don't know what's happened to him really interesting because clearly it's a it's not just governed by i want visibility it's governed by impatience yeah it's simply by i i want a god on my terms and on my schedule and I think that's got a lot of application even for the way that people today try and distort and diminish the sovereignty or the beauty of the otherness of God into saying, I want somebody who is going to be in space and in time the way I want it. So there is a because there's both of those the spatial and temporal dimensions here. Like I want it now, but I also want it visible right here. Mm, yeah. And I think both of those things are, really tell us a lot about the way that idolatry works in our hearts and how we try and fashion idols uh, you know after our own image oh interesting um so i i can't help but think about this whole uh tension we're talking about there's these like there's this conflation of you know this is a, a visible representation of the invisible god uh we want it now we want to bring it to our space and then it's like this is the these are the gods the elohim that brought brought you up out of the land of egypt tomorrow we'll have a feast to yahweh there's this conflation of of yahweh and an image and um it's breaking the second commandment and it's condemned but um, uh, in Christ, we have an image of the invisible God, and it's perfect, and it resolves the the the, the music that that's kind of running into a cacophony here, and becomes beautiful. I mean, how do you see those two things? Yeah, working they literally together? say too, like that. Yeah. It's like I hear the sound of singing, but it's like this really strange. Oh, it sounds like a, it's like a battle cry. Yeah, like, Joshua yeah. like comes near and thinks it's the sound of war, you know, but it's really the sound of singing. Yeah. Anyway, Andrew, what's your take on like the the image of Christ in this, and like uh, bearing the image of God? Are you talking about Christ as the as the calf? Do you mean? Or, or, or well, or Jesus as the I guess maybe the antitype to to this. That, yes, 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 right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't not that you think Jesus is a golden calf. Um, <laughs> He's like, yeah. and I'll be hanging up now. We've yeah. been we've been, I've been yeah. trying to pull out David's idolatry for years now, so this is good that you've just been able to call it for what it is. <laughs> well, I think this is this is the strangeness of um of Old Testament worship, isn't it? That there is that that we have a very clear sense that the people of God want somebody or something tangible by by whom and in whom to experience the worship of God, that that is something that Israel cont continually falls on. Mm, yeah. And at one sense, you, the, in one sense, the Old Testament provides a sort of emphatic, no, you must not have that. And yet when God becomes flesh, then there is, in becoming flesh, he is giving a, a, a yes to the question that people have been asking, which is we would like to have a person in or a, a physical entity in whom we can worship God. Yeah. And so there's a sort of a no and a yes. And I think probably we, we would 
as Christians frame it as a no because of yes, as in no, you are not to worship that or that or that or that, or that because they would be inadequate images. But if you really want to know what God truly looks like, then he looks like this in Jesus. So in that sense, Jesus is an antitype, not just of the golden calf, but of every physical representation made by anybody in any religion in a sense. So anybody, you know, somebody makes a a, a deity in, in a in a home in India and they put that deity in the corner of their home. That, in a sense, is evoking and, and is witnessing to the fact that human beings want to be able to access the divine and to have something or somebody physically there with whom they can commune as if communing with the deity. And it is only in Christ that those deepest wishes we have are fulfilled. And I think in that sense, it's like Jesus is the antitype of, if I can call them this, idols everywhere. Right. Um, but, and there are senses in which he is in he is the idol of God in a in a very literal sense. He is the physical image in mm. whom the deity is located. I think that's a um, and and of course there's a sense in which human beings are you know because that's biblical language from beginning to end, isn't it? That the, we human beings are the image, and that's why the Jews don't have an image in the most holy place, and the Romans are astonished when they discover that. But it's because for for the jews and for christians human beings and the true human christ are in that sense what the image of god really looks like so it's a, it's a beautiful fulfillment of that desire that's helpful for me to understand too why god is so angry as well he calls them a stiff-necked people he calls he says like my anger is burning hot against you i think this is helpful for me like filling out the reasons why the reasons for god's anger mm. and the response and the moses prayer in response because i always feel like i have to like convince people of why god is angry and why he's <laughs> justifiably angry but the idea that like there are there is an image of christ mm. like there is an image of god right. and you're choosing to ignore it is I, I think that's helpful for me at least personally yeah. and pastorally it, it can i just one thing that you just i thought that you just triggered there which i just think is also really fascinating about the golden calf is the way in which people become like that which they worship so i love that moses i think this is the, i think i'm right in saying this is the first time in scripture that israel is referred to as a stiff-necked people yeah i think you are right. and isn't it fascinating they've just built this calf with a very very stiff neck <laughs> and then they have become stiff-necked like them themselves and it's just this theme you know those who worship idols will become like them and so do all who trust in them and it sort of pervades throughout scripture and similarly of course in Paul's theology, that's what happens to those of us who worship Christ, that we, by beholding him, are transformed into his image and become from one degree of glory to another. Yes. And it's just, just lovely that the very act of worshipping makes you like the one that you worship. And I guess the Israel in worshipping the golden calf were probably the first really clear example, that phrase, stiff-necked people. Is, it seems like a pure metaphor, but I don't think it is. I think it's a deliberate play on the fact that the calf has got a very stiff neck as well. Wow. Yeah, that's really good. And, and then there's also this other way in which they, um, I don't know, not necessarily become, but end up imbibing what they were worshiping, right? They It gets the, the, the yeah. it gets ground down and they are forced to drink it. I know you guys picked this up in Echoes of Exodus and kind of trace that theme a bit. You want to talk a little bit about why they have to drink gold dust? It's kind of strange. Well, and in a sense, you know, that's, again, you're drinking the they're being forced to drink the deity, but and then in a very again, you have to be careful with how you play these things as antitypes. But it is an antitype of the sacrament, isn't it? That you, in the sense of this is now is what I have given to for you. I have poured out my blood for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now drink this, all of you. It's a way of saying you can find healing in the drinking of this gift that I wow. poured out. You, there's another sense in which that's the you know the gift of the spirit again, God given to you. And there's a there's even a kind of a fascinating numerical 
uh, twist there in that, you know, on the day that they worship the golden calf, you go around, the Levites run through the camp and, three, you know, you get 3,000 people die. And then on the day of Pentecost, the spirit is poured out, the, the river of God, and 3,000 people are saved. And you get these interesting inversions, even of the way in which this sort of one massive fall story gets turned into a redemption story later on in the text. Um, yeah. So I think there are there's always other things going on in some of these stories. And this thing is a fascinating example of how, again, you drink, you, you're drinking the God that you've made. And now in the, in the Lord's Supper, we drink the God who has given himself to us. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, that's, <laughs> like, like, this is so good. I also thought, I, whenever I read that, the thing that triggered my mind was Numbers 5 and the test for adultery. Like, and so like when in numbers five, yes. there's a woman who, a man who's like accusing his wife of adultery, yeah. she has to drink this bitter, this, the, the dust po- from the tabernacles, the right. dust from the holy place, she has to drink it. And if she's guilty, she'll become sick, but if she's innocent, she'll be fine. And so I don't know if there's an actual parallel there, but I was one, I mean, oh, definitely, I, yeah. idolatry is so, oh, and I'm, I'm justified. Andrew says so. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Talk us through that then, Andrew. Oh, I, I definitely agree. I mean, I, I think the again, I, I see the um, you know the Pentateuch, the first five books, as we have them now, clearly been brought together. I mean, I, I I generally refer to the author as Moses, although I know that there are some bits of it Moses couldn't have written right. because he was dead. Um, but but that that Moses or the person who is editing Moses's work in its final form is deliberately putting these stories in the same shape together. So you're supposed to see those kind of connections between passages, and I think you. It doesn't come out as explicit in Exodus, but the idea that you are uh, that it's the people who end up drinking are then end up becoming sick effectively and are demonstrated as those who deserve to be They're you know, killed or point. judged. And it may well be even that yeah. the, the, the three thousand people who the Levites kill are those who have been exposed as you know guilty as a result of the reaction they've had from drinking the statue. So, um, so we I we don't know, but I, I think that clearly the, the connection with the, with the number stories, I think, is a very strong one. We're supposed to see this is a way in which God separates out, which, of, of course, is also sacramental. That is, it is in, uh, you know, this is Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, that as you, if you drink the, the blood, if you take the body and the blood unworthily, then you actually, that's why some of you have become weak and sick and some of you have died, that there's actually a judgment that you can drink on yourself if you take that which is, the, the deity and end up misusing it and so i think in a sense that 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 numbers uh, story is sort of refracted in both the golden calf story and in the sacraments and, and probably other places as well i'd like us to go up onto the mountain if we can can we oh the, the prayer when, when Moses prays to God, what, like the intercession. Yes, 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 yes I yes. want to talk about I that. Want to talk about that yeah, too. I, yeah, I want. To, yeah, so so God is is angry. My anger is burning hot against these stiff-necked people. I will surely visit their iniquities upon them. All, all that kind of stuff yeah. that's happening here. And then Moses intercedes, reminds God of the covenant, and God relents. So um, one of the things I thought was interesting yeah. here too, and I want Andrew you to talk about this. I hear pretty frequently like. It is right that God is angry at us. It is right that God has wrath towards his people. But what Moses actually appeals to is the opposite. He says, it is not right for you to be angry at your people because then what will the people, what will Egypt think? The enemies will think that you brought yeah. you brought your people out into the wilderness just to kill them. Yeah, he prays for, he appeals to his love in that. In Interesting. Light. Anyway, so I just wanted to hear you. What do, what do you see here? So just give me the, I'm just scanning through the verse in which you say that it's not, Moses says it's not right to be angry. 
<laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know if those are the exact words there. That's not Seth the, Stewart. Seth, Seth, this is Seth Stewart's translation. He, uh, he says, Moses implored the Lord, verse 14, 14, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out oh, and yeah. kill them in the mountains? Oh, you see there. Right. So I don't think I don't think Moses is saying, sorry, I, I, I thought you'd moved on into chapter 33 when he intercedes that, that God says he's going to remove it. I, I thought when you said going up the mountain, I thought we were going into chapter 33. So, um, yeah. I don't think he's saying uh, you are wrong to be angry with right. these people no. for what they've done. I think he's saying your your threat, um, leave me alone that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them and I will make a great nation out of you. I think that's why Moses is objecting. I think because what he's doing is saying the covenant faithfulness, your covenant faithfulness is at stake here. Your name is at stake. Right. You said that you were going to make this people into a great nation. And now you're saying that because of your judgment against them for this sin you're going to obliterate them and therefore break the covenant promise that you've made to abraham isaac and jacob and that's something you surely lord you will not do and of course god doesn't so i don't think there that moses is saying you really not you're wrong to be angry with people for sinning at all i think he's saying you i know well i think he's saying two things as we're going to find in chapters 33 and 34 i know that your slowness to anger and your willingness to forgive sin and iniquity to the thousand generations rather than to revisit the sins on the third and fourth generation. I think there's that sort of con your mercy is so much greater. Um, and then I think there's also the idea that your covenant faithfulness is at stake here, because if you don't make a great nation out of these people, then you will be breaking the word you've promised to the fathers. So it's an application of the anger rather than the fact that it, I don't think Moses is saying you shouldn't be cross about these people sinning. If nothing else, Moses is pretty furious himself. I don't think right. the correction there is, don't get angry with these guys. They haven't done anything wrong. Moses is as angry as anybody. And within a few verses, God is in a sense, almost having to restrain Moses and Moses yeah. breaks the tablets and has to go back and do that all over again. And God, God there's that lovely line is, is it in chapter 34. I think, you know, go and get the tablets, which you broke. Right. Um, yeah. Which you broke. Rewrite them again. You know. <laughs> so, um, so I, I think that's, I think that's the challenge Moses is bringing. It's not the anger. It's the way in which the anger is resulting in, mm the obliteration of the people unless God relents. Right. Yeah. I think that's really good. And, um, and, and so, and so Moses a, a appeals to God's, God's covenant love and the covenants that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, I mean, I almost see Moses as not necessarily, he's not bar. I don't, I don't see him as bartering with God. It's almost like Moses is the mouthpiece of the covenant where he's like, he's he's allowing Moses and God these two characters they're allowing us to enter into the tension of like what we deserve but what God gives and 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 all that kind of stuff that's happening here uh but it's on the basis of the covenant too that Jesus is our mediator who goes before the father right and and plead yeah. our case because of the promises that he's made he's faithful he's faithful to himself uh, and therefore, he's kind to us uh is there any other connections you'd like to make there Andrew with the like the covenant no, did, no that's that's good I mean I I, I think that idea of the, you know, the mediator who often up on the mountainside or up on the hill uh, cries out to the father that the this the sinful people be forgiven on the basis of their priestly intercession. It's obviously something we find in Abraham um, that, that people have been, you know, again, back to the lot story I mentioned earlier that, people you know, far be it from you to do such a thing. Will not the judge of all the earth do what's right? You have that in this Moses story again. You have a, you know, in both cases, you've got a guy up on a mountainside, literally looking down over the valley in which the people are 
the, the sinful people are about to be destroyed and you find the, the faithful intercession. Then, of course, you have Jesus heading up on his own his own hill um, and making mediation between us and the father and providing a way for our sins to be forgiven on the basis of his righteous mediation. So I, and there are probably others, actually, although they're the ones that immediately spring to mind. And I think that's the, the sort of the beautiful beauty of the the intertextuality, the echoes in, in Scripture that you find this key incident just appears in various forms and modes in all sorts of different places in the Bible. Yeah, and 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 um, and we we kind of see another like I guess another echo of that, or even a bookend, if you will, in this in this chapter. Uh, I, I don't I don't know if I'm jumping too far on it, but it is amazing that after the punishment is doled out by the Levites, uh, Moses then says. Uh, let me go up to the Lord to see if I can make atonement. And the first thing out of his mouth when he goes up to make atonement is blot me out of your book, right? It's like, let, yeah. let me lay my life down to make atonement for the people. Yeah. And God says, no, 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 I'm not going to let you do that. But instead in Jesus, we see that he does it himself. Yeah. And, yeah. Paul, and Paul says the same thing to does he? in the book of Romans, right? He yeah. says like, I wish yeah. I could like, oh yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Off for yeah. the sake of my fellow men. Yes. So, and I yeah, think... it, it's something that you do when you when you love the people you serve is you're prepared to lay your life down for them. Greater love has no man than this. But there's only one person of whom God says, I'm going to accept that. Yes. That um, because of everybody else. He said, no, 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 this is you, you. You cannot die as a substitute or representative for these people. But I can. I, I am. There is only one in whom it is appropriate for me to regard the human race as having been reckoned sinners in this one man and therefore now to be reckoned righteous in him. And that's in Jesus. So it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's it, the, the offer. I, let me die instead of them. I, I mean, a lot of parents know what that's like. Mm. I suspect, you know, if you see a child who's dying of, you know, leukemia or something tragic like that, the number of parents who would say, I wish it was me. Yes. That instinct is actually very human. It's not uniquely, that's not the marvelous thing about the Jesus story. Cause you know what I mean? Yeah. Representative death or exchange it, in itself is, something that a lot of people would desire to do. What's marvelous about the Jesus story is that it, it works, that actually wow. it's an appropriate substitution because Jesus is in being God, divine and human is mm. able to carry and have all of the, you know, the behavior of the world reckoned to him and then to have his righteousness reckoned to them. That's the thing that makes it marvelous. Yes. I was looking at verse 29. I just got saved again. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. I think I was looking at verse 29. Uh, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord each one at the cost of his son and of his brothers, so right. that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The only way that we get the blessing of the Lord's favor is if there's one who, at the cost of his own son, serves the Lord and serves us at the same time. I just, it's just... Yeah, again, yeah, amazing. Well, yeah. Um, okay, well, we're, we're wrapping up here. Um Andrew, uh, I mean, let's see. I'm trying to think if there's any other major themes here that we're missing out on uh, in Exodus 32 or, or anything. I we found want to touch one on. other uh, fall thing in here, oh, yeah. verse uh, 25, when the people had broken loose or like run wild or like it's a very similar word to the na word naked in the Garden of Eden. Oh, is it? Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. Um, Moses, uh, Moses. I mean, Andrew, what do you see? <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, Moses, same thing. Yeah. yeah, now, any, yeah. I, the, the thing is, there's probably plenty of other things in there as well. They're just, those are the main things I, I see. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's exhaustive. And I think this is right. part of the beauty of studying the word is that so often you find things and think, oh man, I didn't, I've read this story many times, but I've never noticed that before. Yeah, absolutely. Well, man, this has been um, extremely, extremely enlightening, exciting, 
um, man, like my, I want to, like, it makes me want to read the Bible more. It makes me want to worship more. Like this is what I love about reading the Bible like this, like finding the musicality of it and how it culminates in Jesus. And just, um, it's been really fun having you on Andrew to let somebody else kind of step in and do that uh, kind of over us. I've just felt like I've just been like just sitting here worshiping today, just getting to listen, um, and, and receive that from you. So thank you so much for your time today, Andrew. Um, yeah, thanks a lot. Oh, yeah. thank you. Yeah. It's been, really... it's been so good being with you. I just, I love the, the, the energy and the excitement about reading the Bible. So I, I, I love that. And thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Well, um, make sure you guys, uh, check out echoes of Exodus, um, and, uh, make sure you, uh, check out everything that Andrew has to offer. Uh, check out his blog at thinktheology.co.uk. Follow him on Twitter. Follow him on Twitter AJ. at AJW Theology, and uh, we'll put all that in the, in the description. Uh, thank you again, Andrew, uh, and we will uh, see you guys next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. Spoken Gospel is a nonprofit organization dedicated to creating gospel-centered media that speaks the gospel out of every corner of Scripture in every corner of the world. To learn more about the ministry of Spoken Gospel and view more of our resources, visit SpokenGospel.com.